Hi, I'm Mark Stottlemyre, and welcome back to the second season of Get to the Joke. Our guest today is Paul Hooper, who is one of my favorite comics I get to watch and work with. Uh, Paul has been seen on Gotham Comedy Live and has a really outstanding album called Tense and Uncomfortable that you must check out. I hope you enjoy this interview with Paul as we take a really good look um, about his upbringing and how that transformed him into the, the, the incredible comic that he is today. So please enjoy, subscribe to this channel for more interviews like this, and now let's get to the joke. say my sex drive's alive and well, that's a thing. It's alive and well, and uh, I don't really have a fetish. If I had a cop to having a fetish, I'm a tad bit of an exhibitionist. With a shame, because you can't act on it. I can't go with my girlfriend to a nice secluded park around 2 a.m., have sex, as the breeze blows across our genitals or whatever, and, and <laughs> someone stumbles across us, we go to jail. Meanwhile, far more sinister fetishes are perfectly legal, like the S&M thing that's just way too popular. People in this room do it, I know you do, and then my friends do it, that, that choking. You go behind closed doors and choke each other. Just so much worse than exhibitionism. You go in your boudoir and you just go strangle. Just commit consensual felonies behind closed doors. How's this possible? I can't go on a beach at midnight with my lovely girlfriend as the waves lap upon my buttocks. And my buddy can go behind a closed door and just hit a woman with a fucking boat oar and everything's fine. Just fucking wahoo chop her in the larynx. Everything's good. Just fucking mule kick her into the sheetrock. Everything's good. My right nut comes out. I'm doing two years. Someone explain these laws to me. Hey, buddy. Hey, man. Hey, it's so good to me? see you. Yeah, can you hear me okay? Yeah. Good. Dude, it's so good to see you, man. It's been a long time. Good to see you, man. Yeah, it's been a bit. Dude, year, year and a half? Yeah, oh, yeah at, the, at the shortest amount of time. Yeah, probably, I don't know. It's probably been longer than that, I feel like. I can't remember. Yeah, but I think it was a gig in Pennsylvania, like yeah, yeah. maybe summer of 2019. Yeah, I think it was you came to Blue Mountain was the last time in that really, like that new Tripoli, that really small town. Yeah, it was fun, man. Yeah, yeah, man. Well, dude, thank you so much for doing this. This is quite the honor to get you. I, dude, you're such a great. I mean, you're one of those comic. Like, I'll never forget the first time I met you, which is at that. Um, gosh, it was at like that. It was like the bottom of a bar somewhere in Brooklyn, Queens. I forget. At Drexler's. Drexler's, me. yes. And me and Buddy Harris had just done. We did okay. We're like, oh my gosh, we can do this. We can like get. Be, we could be like New York comics, and then like you showed up. 
and like we didn't know who you were, but then you just destroyed. We're like, oh, we're not, we're not ready at all. Like, <laughs> look, look at the caliber of individuals that are just dropping in here to uh, to do it. So, but um, I don't know about that. I remember it being fun in the basement. Met yeah. you guys. You guys all like had a car full of comics. Yeah, Pennsylvania. We had. But, uh, I wanted to start out actually a little bit differently. It was this. I, I screenshot. I had screenshotted this post of yours from October last year, and you probably know which one I'm talking about. Um, I'll paraphrase it real super quick, but it's, uh, comedy is not back. Just because a few clubs reopened across the country does not mean you can make anything close to a living at it. The truth about comedy is this. If you're famous, you're fine. If your spouse is a breadwinner, you're fine. If you contend to keeping your day job and do comedy on the side, you'll be fine. But if anything else, you are super fucked. Um, I thought that's like the realest post of any comic that's written anything during coronavirus. Um, I know it's not a joke, but it's like a real like cool, like um, behind that, like the pulling the curtains kind of thing of like uh, kind of the true kind of road comics like yourself and, you know, like not every comic is Bill Burr and Jim Gaffigan. That's probably about the top 5%. About the other like 50% are people like yourself headlining road gigs. So how tough has it been for you right now um, with this year off? I mean, this is the only thing you have, like this is the only thing you're skilled at. So how tough has this past year been for you? Yeah, man, it's been excruciating. Well, it's like financially, it's just a bloodbath. So, yeah. You know. Do you qualify for unemployment or have you been taking up side yeah, hustles? Or? I got unemployment, but it's so low, you know, so it's yeah. helped. But um, it's definitely not, of course, it's not meant to match what you were making before. But, yeah, yeah it was just sort of like my last road gig was love of 2020 was March 5th through 7th in Atlanta. It's strange and I just went back and did that same club that was my first gig back the end of February. Mm-hmm. It was almost fifty one weeks exactly. Yeah, wow. Weeks off. <laughs> so all that time off and then yeah. I wrote that post when I was um in like twenty seconds. I was just frustrated yeah. sitting in bed. I was stressed about money and then I would sort of see these things too. It's, it's sort of like comedy, it's all over the place. You figure like there's so many comics that have day jobs, mm-hmm. comics that are there's comics that you don't know. And there's that mysterious side of it where I was like, am I the only one freaking out about money? Yeah. And I'm like, or did someone, is everybody married to an anesthesiologist? <laughs> no one seems to be, there are people, they just, they're like, not as vocal as me about it. Cause yeah. I'm just like, man, this went on and on and on. And I'm just losing money, losing money, losing money. And so, I mean, so like what, so I know like you've moved out of New York. You Are you moving, did you move back in with your mom? Is that where you're, you're currently at? No, oh. my sister's place in North Carolina. Okay. And so I, and I, I remember hearing on a few of your podcasts how like prior to the pandemic, these were all being filmed and you said that you were home for a month straight and it killed you to be home in your apartment in New York for a month. And now you've been doing that yeah. for a year. So forget the financial toll. What if, like, right. as far as your mental health poll, what are we looking at here with you? You know, it was, I was a little burnt out with comedy going into the pandemic. And I've okay. heard other comics say that. Like, mm-hmm. the, the initial, like, break was good. I've heard people say that. And I was okay taking a few months off from comedy, honestly. Yeah. And then as it went on, you know, uh, it started getting me. I'm okay being alone at mm-hmm. a lot of times or being secluded. I don't really, I'm not the most social person, so I, I don't think so. I would basically do shows, hang out with a handful of friends, and that yeah. was my social. Life. So I yeah. didn't miss a ton. I don't yeah. care for gatherings too much. And so <laughs> I was able to just sort of hunker down and ride it out. But it was the whole thing of the financial side and the career side of what yeah. I'm going to do. I'm going to have to leave New York. That was the stuff that yeah. was, you know, sitting alone in your room, even though I'm okay being all normally with those thoughts, uh-huh. that would start to eat. 
Yeah. I'm not lonely here. Yeah. But it's all the stuff that's gone wrong this year that yeah. really, like started. Well, it's so unknown. It's such a variable because even when things open back up, you know, there's talks about like what's that going to look like, or you know, you know, you know how club, um, you know how showrunners are. Like if they can only seat fifty percent of the people, you're only going to get fifty percent of what you got paid in the past. They're not going to keep. They're not going to like you know keep keep at it kind of thing. Maybe some will, but I, but um, also the fact that like um. They're, you know, they're they're predicting like a bottleneck where these top comics like Gaffigan and Seinfeld will start doing kind of like the clubs and stuff that you kind of do right now, and so like there'll just kind of be this trickle down effect of like comics doing like smaller rooms that haven't done smaller rooms in for for years, kind of thing. Do you so are you also yeah. concerned about the the unknown about when you'll be able to get back to that kind of what you made in your best year, you know, in comedy, like when that will happen again? I, I'm thinking I'm to figure out a new way because yeah. I keep thinking, you know, I sat here and asked the gigs start to come back now. Uh-huh. I picked up a couple things coming up, but I'm sort of like, oh, it's not, you know, I'm not picking up 20, 30 weeks. I'm yeah. Four weeks, which is not going to carry my year. Yeah. Spread over and people are like, well, it'll slowly, you know, and a few, you know, a few months ago before it was like this, people were like, mm. you should try to come down to Florida. Yeah. You know, this gig I did in Florida. I'm like, I would love to do that gig, but what's it going to do like? I'm gonna fight to get this gig, do three days of shows, and then take five more months off. Yeah. I mean, what's that? Help? Financially, yeah. my mental state. Yeah. I mean, I was just so I was like, it's now starting to come back a little bit more, you know. And I'm sort of like, but it's not fixed. It's yeah. worse than it was before, and it was already sort of fucked. Yeah. You know, think about 2019, like yeah. trying to make a living as a comic that's mm-hmm. not famous mm-hmm. was shitty. In yeah. 2019 took everything you had, and so. 2021, 2022 is not going to be any better. Uh-huh. I figure I'm going to, you know, like all of us have to come up with something else. Yeah. To well, sort of augment it. And um, because I don't think straight stand up on the road 40 uh-huh. weeks a year, even if you do 40 weeks, I'll have a draw or you're not somewhat famous or comedy famous. You uh-huh. can't make enough money at 40 yeah. weeks. I only don't live in your car. And, oh, geez. Yeah. That's. And I don't uh, even think it's possible to get 40 weeks of work, like good work. I, mean, yeah. I guess you could do slap together shows but yeah real work exactly exactly now now i've only done three shows with you but on those shows you're not a guy that sells merch are you now going to have are you now thinking like this is something i'm going to have to be doing i know you're not i know you're not like the guy that wants to shake the got people's hands and talk about their kids and all that bullshit but is that now something that you have to think about applying into your stand-up now like make sure i have a shirt and make sure i incorporate that into a joke and that kind of whole charade that comics do incorporated into a joke but yeah. like, i'm not you know i had a cd for a while those stopped selling of course those uh-huh. were like you know not a thing yeah. and so there's these you can't really sell an album yeah uh, hard copy on the road anymore so I, I haven't had shirts since i like 15 years ago yeah. when i started featuring my yeah. shirts so i'm not eager but i've got to figure out a way yeah without uh you know selling myself out where it was like that i like that I can make some more money doing, but I'm just not, no, I'm not going to cave. Yeah. I, sometimes I'm like, if it comes, like I've seen comics that just sell everything. Yeah. You're just already a salesman or the last 10 minutes of your show is that. I'm yeah. like, if it comes to that point for me, I'd rather just sell something other than comedy. Yeah. I'd rather just get out of the business and sell boats in Florida. Okay. And it gets to a certain point. It's too much. Yeah. I mean, but you know, I mean, I even sell things I'm proud of, whether it's uh, like an album or yeah. something like that. And maybe a t-shirt that I thought was cool, too. I'm not opposed to that. Yeah. It's just like, you know, I'm not going to go up there and, uh, I don't know, a yeah. five-minute, ten-minute sales pitch or I try know. to weave it into a joke. <laughs> <laughs>
Corny nonsense. I know. I know. And also, there's, I'm glad I have less money than those comics. Yeah. And those comics, you know? Yeah. So I, maybe I'm an idiot. No. An idiot. No, man, dude. I, like, what my observation of you is when I see you perform, I'm like, Paul is the smartest person in the room right now. And it's just, and it's like, I don't know if everyone realizes that, but your observations and how fast you are and this vivid imagery that you paint, we'll get into that. Some of the, some of the imagery that you kind of paint, the kind of things that, you know, in the clip that you sent me about around like your exhibitionist and you're using like words like, you know, like mule kick into sheetrock, like it's, you know, it's like these, these phrases that I've never heard of other comics. You, you, you kind of go that other intellectual level. And I, I, I will ask you about that later because you're one of the few guys that do it, but you, I can see why you would not want to kind of, you know, pimp yourself out at the end of shows because you are this, you, you know, you're this very intellectual comic, and I can see, like, that you, you know that your jokes are very self-deprecating, and you always kind of paint yourself into, you know, like, hey, you're, like, in a, you're kind of, like, the guy that's the butt of the jokes. I can tell that you know that, and even you said, like, I, I'm not going to change my joke style for the audience. Like, I, you're almost, like, kind of, like, up here, and they have to come up to you because it's not worth your time to come down to their level, you know, you know, so... Um, I'm we, stubborn to a fault, you know. I know. So, That's a good thing. It's the hardest road possible <laughs> yeah. to do it. I mean, yeah. I truly love stand-up, and I just realized, like, in this day and age, there's more to it than just straight yeah. stand-up to make a living at it stuff. So I'm trying to figure out what I can do yeah. for myself. Yeah. No, that's awesome, man. Well, so, you know, I mean, I like saying things in a different way, you know. Yeah, like, and for sure. A way that hasn't been said that's that that it's, it's, it's me. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, originality is everything. That and it being funny is everything. Yeah, yeah, and and that's why I think sets yourself apart. And that's why I think I'm such a huge fan of yours because there's very few comics that can do what you do. I feel like, but we'll get to that. I want to go way back in time, uh, not way back in time, but back in time. Um, so you're raised in the South in a religious family, but I saw interviews said like, "Hey, you got away from that." I think, and the quote I have here is, "None of it ever really scared me." Can you kind of describe kind of your, like, growing up, you as a kid, kind of? Because, like, when I see, I mean, you don't really talk much about your early life. Not that people have asked you. That's why I'm asking you. But um, sure. I picture, like, very strict code of conduct that you're held responsible for. And you, your joke about your father leaving the family and that kind of thing. So can you kind of paint me a picture of, like, kind of how you grew up and then kind of, like, why you've kind of had a falling out with religion and that kind of thing from like it sounds like it's from a lot of your childhood experiences yeah i mean it wasn't too extreme i was raised in north carolina so i was raised i guess technically southern baptist mm -hmm. you know and it sounds severe when people know the parts of kind of southern baptist sort of a mm -hmm. scary thing but yeah. the church i went to you know my whole family went there and i think it was my uh what would it make me so my grandmother's brother-in-law was the preacher okay. whatever that is for me and mm -hmm. so um you know, he was pretty intense, but it didn't scare me. And my family, uh -huh. they would let me sort of sketch or draw. Uh -huh. You know, I'd stand up, lip sync the hymns. Uh -huh. They weren't really on top of it. As long as we kept our mouths shut and were quiet, it was everything. And there was a lot of the, you know, the sermons were sort of get loud, but not. It never, I don't know. I just, it wasn't that scary to me. Uh -huh. But the reason they organized religion, what I think played a role in me, uh -huh. like sort of like quite everything was because charlotte at that time well, i'm 45 now uh -huh. born in 1975 uh -huh. so when i was at ptl club uh -huh. remember jeff baker oh yeah evangelist yeah yeah he was like right around charlotte his okay. whole 
areas, Heritage USA, theme park, yeah. everything he did. But we would watch it. Like after game shows, I watched as a kid, I watched game shows with my grandmother during the summer breaks, and then PTL Club would come on. It was this crazy thing to yeah. watch. And so when he, you know, got a hooker or yeah. whatever he did, it yeah. fall from grace and ruined everything. Yeah. I remember the adults talking about it. It was the show. A hometown story slash world news story. Yeah. Slash it was my payment. It was all this thing. I saw it come crashing down. Yeah. And then I heard this adult version of why it did, the dark <laughs> side of it. Yeah. And all that made me like, oh, yeah. And then so I'm, I'm sorry, I have this fascination with televangelist and like, and during that time, during my childhood, like mm -hmm. Jimmy Swagger, mm -hmm. you know. Mm hmm. And all that was happening in the yeah. 80s and stuff. All these crazy televangelists, and they all were just screwing up left and right and getting hookers and doing drugs. <laughs> and like, there's a lot for a kid. And it's like, oh, this is religion. But then, oh, what's this other side of it? So yeah. It made me think, oh, okay. So, this is all bullshit or money making scheme, you know? Yeah. So, so how, so how is like, um, I guess like, um, you know, this version of you that's on the stage is probably very equatable to how you are off the stage. You know, um, like kind of, you know, you, you you always seem to be questioning things. You always seem to kind of be the one that goes against the grain. You're seeing it from a different angle, not being a conformist. Like, how was the relationship between, like, you and your mom? Especially, did, so your dad did, did, have you ever, did you ever know your dad? Or did he walk out before you even had memories? No, he left when I was, like, three or four. And then uh, he had, vis I had visitation with him. Okay. I was 12, and then I didn't want to see him anymore. Okay. Since then. So it went from basically it's like it's twelve or thirteen I stopped seeing him. Mm -hmm. Saw him again at nineteen. Saw him again at like thirty-two. Okay. And then we've reconnected now in the last five or six years through my sisters, and we're starting to sort of try to rebuild some yeah. kind of relationship. Can, can I ask what? Can I ask why of such big gaps in between? Like, if, I mean, if you're not comfortable talking about, it, I understand, but why was no, it? No, the... I didn't want to see him. Yeah. And all these issues, which is like would be an hour in itself to tell but it was like from about it and the visitation mm -hmm. just uh, i was very close to my mom yeah and they raised me about two different sets of rules and then um i don't know it was just sort of to describe him as a character was very intense and i just at some point right you know as i got 12 13 whatever it was probably going into puberty too mm -hmm. and everything going on i just was like i don't want to see him anymore and yeah um, wow so almost another court case yeah so they sent to a child psychologist, all this other stuff. And I almost went back to court again until he's finally like, okay, if you don't want to see me, all right. Yeah. I respect that. And that's, that's what it was. And I didn't want to see him again. And then um, just slowly, you know, I saw him like a few years later when he was coming through town again and we had lunch. And then um, I was, I saw him. Okay. You know, like, another 10 or 12 years later. So. Wow, that's crazy, man. I mean, that's such like, it seems like a, such a mature way of behaving at 12 and 13 years old. Like, I didn't have, like, I mean, you're, I mean, you recognize, like, this is not a healthy situation for me being. I'd rather go through the court system, which isn't good for a 12-year-old. It's kind of like, so, I mean, kind of like, who would you say, like, kind of shaped your personality? Is that your mom? Kind of like this kind of like, uh, the, this kind of like, um, intellectual vagabond is kind of what I would describe you as kind of person. Like, um, is that kind of your mom's influence or was there more, was there kind of more outside influence in your life then at that point, if your dad was out of the picture? My mom a lot, you know, I'm close with her still to this day, you know, and then, but when my mom had to go back to work after the divorce, mm -hmm. she was a single 
working mother. So my um, aunt and grandmother lived in the same neighborhood as us, which was mm-hmm. nice. So they looked after me. Okay. They took me to school. And in the summer months, they took care of me while she was working. So really close to them. So my mom, my aunt, my grandmother pretty much raised me. Okay. My grandmother, I sort of, uh, but my grandmother was like this super cynical, mm-hmm. unintentionally funny, I mean, but like four foot 11, <laughs> incredibly morose, doom and gloom, but I loved her. She was yeah. awesome. So yeah. She was awesome. And she was really good to me. You know, grandkids get the great treatment. So yeah. she was really, I was an only child. My dad left. So she really mm-hmm. was above beyond and, you know, took care of me. But also she had these really like dark stories she would tell about <laughs> her childhood and stories that I don't even know. I've talked because like they're crazy. I don't know yeah. if she made them up. Yeah. <laughs> she told him, I don't know what was going on, but like, it's real dark. My grandmother yeah. would like just a lot of death. A lot of stories just ended in death. Yeah. Doom and gloom. <laughs> and, but I loved her and I was yeah. captivated by it. So I think she shaped me in some way. I spent a lot of time with her. Is it, is it the so, fact that she kind of treated you like an adult? It seemed like this, these are very adult conversations. Like if it, it wasn't, it didn't matter if you were 12 years old, she was going to talk to you like you were 45 or whatever. Kind of like she would talk to you. It seems that way. Yeah. Yeah. She treated me like really well. This like, my aunt, my grandmother really did. Wow. Me, like, some res- Has your dad ever seen you perform live? Yeah, he came. He's now out in the Midwest, but um, he came. He was living in Texas for a bit and then came down to Houston and okay. saw some shows. What was that like? What was that like for you? Did, did you know he was there or did he not tell you that he was there till after? Yeah, he was like, um, it was a plan, you know. Okay. Like, oh, I'd like see out to texas i'm like well i'm in houston and whenever and so he's like okay i'll come down he got his own hotel came up and then you know i think he's now is like was sort of respectful of like my time and not mm-hmm. i'm like i can't be hanging out all day and then two shows trying to reconnect with my father <laughs> yeah. two shows in front of him that's yeah. exhausting yeah but he left me alone during the day he come to the ship happy and proud and nice the other thing he did that was sort of funny was like before he came to see the shows he's like do you have any jokes about me I'm like, I have this thing about my father left when I was three. Yeah. You guys are going to pay the price for it. I said, I go, my, I have this thing about my father left when I was three. He interrupted it. He's like, I, I, I it was four. <laughs> your mother told me. <laughs> All right. Part of the problem. <laughs> That's funny. I'm like interrupting, of course. Let's go back. <laughs> <laughs> so so you're so you you got obsessed with comedy in fourth grade and you're watching things like Eddie Murphy's Delirious. Now you like some older comics too, but I'm gonna focus on Eddie Murphy Delirious. What, you know, where where how did you kind of get introduced to that in fourth grade? I'll be I'll be honest, I don't think I even knew who Eddie Murphy was in fourth grade. So like if you're if your family, if your grandmother's like a preacher's wife and you're kinda like in this pseudo-religious household with I don't know, you said there's different roles, different parents, but um, where did this kind of, where did the comedy come out of? Like, where did, were you just like standing there one day and it just like a VHS tape was laying around and you popped it in or what was the introduction to comedy for you with all these kind of like well, controls? And that was my, my dad, my stepmom, I think they got like HBO pretty early on. Mm-hmm. So on one of those visitations, I think I just had access to it. Okay. I don't think they were stressed about it too much, and I found something like that. I don't know if that was on HBO at the time, but they okay. had cable like real early on. Like, yeah. I remember I saw MTV at their place real early on. Mm-hmm. And so I'm delirious and all that. I found on some channel, and I loved it. And then as, you know, I grew up a little bit, then my mom got cable, and I was able to watch all that, like, that 80s stuff. Yeah. Where they, you know, 
was everywhere on yeah. every like base cable channel. Absolutely, so yeah. I watched all that, and then as I got into my teens, Andrew Dice Clay would come from other kids in the neighborhood and stuff like that. Okay, but what, at, and at, some kids just had access to like more adult stuff. My cousin yeah. was older than me, so okay. he was already cursing and watching more adult <laughs> stuff, so it would trickle down to me. Okay, know? and now as a ten-year-old, what was it that was attractive about stand-up comedy to you? I mean, you're 10, you're learning, you're learning basic multiplication at this point in school. So like, where is it that, I, mean, I know you're only a kid and you like the being alone factor, but where is this kind of uh, being the center of attention for an hour and having people laugh with you and that kind of thing? Do you know what was attractive at such an early age that, you know, that you were obsessed with comedy? Honestly. I don't know, go back. I don't know what it was. If it was stand up, there was also a time like really early on in grade school Oh man, is that they go? The teacher was like, I don't know if it's every week or whatever. We go, someone can bring a record, like a vinyl record. When okay. Play it. Yeah. So you get one kid gets to choose. I don't know. I yeah. went to this bargain basement. Like, I don't even know where the store is, and uh, and I found like a Laurel and Hardy record. Oh wow! Well, I listened to it. And I thought it was hilarious. Yeah. And I brought it into school. It just bombed. Yeah. Everybody thought it sucked. And I remember very early on, like, it's funny. Yeah. That's your problem. Is. Like, I was very angry. I'm like, you, you got to understand why it's funny. Yeah. Maybe one other kid agreed with me. So early on, it was like, I don't know why. I, I just like funny stuff. Okay. And, you know, I what? got frustrated very early on with people. <laughs> <laughs> A lifelong fight. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Um, well, okay, and then and then you, you you mentioned one time that you mentioned it's like an offhand comment that you screwed up in high school. So this 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 seems to be somewhat common with like comics, with just like this um this like tug of war with education and that kind of thing. Like, what was it about school? Because you are a smart guy. I think anyone that talks to you would 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 agree that you you that you're very intellectual and you're very you're you're very deep and and I'm sure you're a great conversationalist when you want to have a conversation and that doesn't annoy you. But like um. Uh, but what was it about high school that you just didn't it didn't gel with you? I think part of it was well from grade school up. I did well in school. I guess maybe a lot of us do where it's easy. Mm -hmm. It just came easy to elementary school and then through even middle school mm -hmm. through seventh grade, maybe eighth. And I think it it goes hand in hand with like it seems tied in with like puberty. As soon as yeah. puberty started to click, my attitude went south. In my grades, I became antisocial. Uh -huh. And then also, that's sort of the time where classes started to get harder. So I was in like some academically gifted class starting in sixth grade. Uh -huh. Seventh, I was ahead. Seventh seemed to be no problem. Then eighth, I was in advanced English, and they uh -huh. got you in like algebra, and they got you like a year ahead of everyone. And then um, my attitude went south. And then, then it, the whole thing of you're going to have to study and apply yourself to get this, and I never had to. And those just two things blew it apart that I was just had a really shitty attitude and just want to be locked in my room. Sort uh -huh. of typical teenager stuff, but maybe to an extreme. And then my mom was working, you know, single working mother, so it was a lot. To, yeah. Couldn't really force me to get to school. They dropped out, got me back in 10th grade, dropped out again. Okay. And finished at a community college. Okay. But no, I got didn't get a PD, I got a diploma. Yeah. Because that was a compromise with my mother. It's like, you're going to finish. Okay. Diplomas. Okay. Um, I don't know what it was. It just like clockwork. I'm telling you, it was just like, I look back. I try to explain to my mom now because I still apologize for those times. <laughs> the hell I put her through. Yeah. Because she really is the best. And she tried right. everything. Yeah. And 
instantly turned off by, um, you know, also kids change. Uh-huh. There's a whole cliques break out in eighth and ninth grade going into high school. Yeah. And it really angered me. And I'm like, the guy that I used to like, these kids, I'm like, I hate them. Yeah. Whether it be a nerd or a jock or whatever group you break into, I just like, everybody's changed and I hate them. Yeah. I don't want to be around anyone. Yeah. I just want to be alone. And it was just, um, yeah, and it was almost felt like it was overnight. And maybe that's my hormones going a little crazy. I don't know. But well, sometimes it, I feel like, because I was a pretty happy kid up until that point, and mm-hmm. I don't feel like my attitude's recovered yet yeah. from that. Well, if if I mean I might be marrying points together that shouldn't be married, but I, I'm seeing it's like you were in these gifted programs in seventh eighth grade, so you would you know you're, you know you're around thirteen fourteen. That's right about the time that you tell your dad that you don't want anything to do with him now. So it's like as soon as you break away from your father, then things at school seem to start going down south. Like now you're like, is it? Do you think that you almost like mature too quickly that you became like? You almost like you almost like aged twenty years, and you were almost like I don't have anything in common with these like immature kind of like kids kind of thing. Like, did you just get too old for now that you're kind of like the man of the house? Your mom's working all the time. You're probably taking care of shit at home that needs to be taken care of, like chores and shit like that. And you know, your grandmother's helping you out. But I'm sure you're also helping her out because of her advanced age. And it's like, did you think that was like the stress of being? you know, a 40-year-old trapped in a 15-year-old's body, maybe, and, like, you had nothing in common with the rest of the kids who had two parents, and they could fuck around and drink, you know, at bonfires on the beach, and you're just like, hey, I got shit I got to do when I get home kind of thing. I don't know if I felt like that, like I had to take care of, because I still look a kid. I was aware mm-hmm. of that. That was taken care of, and it's like I had to take care I was still a kid. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think about other people's family life. I never even thought about, like, oh, he's got his dad and both parents mm-hmm. home. I never thought about it like that uh-huh. or thought about other people like that. Everyone's attitude shifted, including mine. And I just, I don't know what it was. The anger sort of came up uh-huh. and you're right. Maybe they, you know, tied into the same time I stopped seeing my dad, uh-huh. puberty, great suffer. I'm sure all of that were, was all tied into Were you that, angry that, really that, that your set of circumstances were so much different than everybody else's? I mean, how many kids in your school were going through similar experiences that you were going through at that age? Maybe one that you may not even know of or something like that, maybe? Was that maybe it? That, like, th- like you, you were dealing with real-life shit, and these other guys were, like, dealing with other normal 14-year-old bullshit kind of things, like, you know, homecoming dance and stuff like that. Is that maybe it? That you had nothing in common with these other guys? Maybe, but I feel like, you know, it's like my generation, or I don't know how old you are, our generation. I'm yeah, really, I'm 35. I'm, I'm 35. I'm, I'm in this, we're in the same. <laughs> generation but Y or whatever. I getting divorced left and right. I mean, yeah. what were they, I mean, a lot of our parents were divorced. So I never always want to be like, oh, my parents got divorced early and blame anything on that. Yeah, like, but they so might still have people. connections with those two parents where you pretty much assumed your father. Would you say that you assumed your father's role? In the house with your mom. I mean, you know, not being weird to the side, but like, did you feel like you carried a lot more responsibility as soon as your father was no longer in the picture with your mom? Honestly, no. Okay. No, I still played the kid, and they really took care of me. My mom probably ter- carried the load for the whole house as well as my well, my aunt, my grandmother helping uh-huh. her too. So no, I didn't feel that. No, okay. I didn't feel like I had it. Okay. I wasn't capable of that because I was incredibly immature and then yeah, been that way for a long time. And <laughs> just I don't know. It, seemed, it was a brat. There was a lot of anger. Mm-hmm. I didn't know where it came from, and it—I mean, it was—it was—it was all of a sudden where it was like seventh grade. You know, there's challenges, whatever. This is hard, yeah. and in eighth grade, I mean, it just really hit the fan. Yeah, I don't know. 
I mean, what, to this day, was I it the school was no longer challenging for you? I mean, you said you were in advanced classes in eighth grade or whatever. Was it the fact that, like, this was a total waste of your time? You could have done this, you could have done what takes eight hours in a day and an hour and leave? Was it, was it the school's fault for not trying to do more for you to keep you interested and stuff? I know your attitude was, like, even kids with, with, with maybe attitude issues or whatever, not mean issues, but different attitudes or different circumstances, like, they can still find, like, that, kind of like that Hillary Swank kind of teacher who will kind of, like, bring them into their world and mentor them. Like, was it just that, that no one was doing that for you at the school? I felt, you know what I feel? I look back in, in the work, you know, learning geometry or whatever. I hated it. I didn't yeah. want to, but I could have, I, you know, someone could have sat me down and taught me and it would have clicked. It yeah. was more, and that was hard, and I didn't want to do the work, and I'm a lazy kid, and this and that, or I'm being a brat. But mm-hmm. most of it, the, the thought of looking back on what I dreaded was someone going, you're going somewhere for eight hours a day. You're yeah. going to a building eight hours a day with strangers you don't want to be around. Yeah. And it makes me claustrophobic to this day. Oh, wow. Like, okay. Yeah, it means school for six or eight hours. If you told me tomorrow morning I had to go to school, mm-hmm. I hate the idea of being in a building. Mm-hmm. It's a prison. It yeah. feels it's starting to feel that way. Where I dreaded as a kid before that, yeah. I just got through it. And somewhere around eighth grade, I'm like, no, <laughs> I can't take it. I dread every minute of this experience. I remember getting, yeah. I remember these vivid memories of like summer break. And then, you know, school's coming back up. When are you going to start again? I mean, I'd count the days. Mm-hmm. And then once school started up, I would count the hours Sometimes the minutes before, you know, leaving school till I had to go back the next morning. Okay. Okay. I would count it and dread it. Yeah. Dread it. And I don't remember any kids doing that. Kids just got on with it. Yeah. Like, not that big of a deal. I'm like, you don't hate it as much as I hate this? (laughs) Yeah. Going to this building. Yeah. These kids sitting in these desks. I, I just, the whole experience. So more than the work. Yeah. I hated the work. It was more like. You hated the lifestyle of being a student. It's just like, here's the work. You have to do it. I probably if someone been disciplined with me, but... Um. Just a quick plug and we'll get right back to the show. Have you checked out my website, markstodd.com? It gives you a whole wealth of information on how to see me live at shows. You can catch past, get to the joke episodes and bonus content, and you can also check out some stand-up videos for myself. Please check out my website. Again, that's markstodd.com, M-A-R-C-S-T-A-U-D.com. Come see me live. Also, please, once again, subscribe to this channel, like our videos, leave a comment, I'll get back to you. Now let's get back to the joke. So what did you do with your time then? If you dropped out of school, what was it What was it that you would do during the day then at that point? I've always had these, uh, still to this day probably, is like obsession. So whether it be skateboarding or okay. start playing guitar or mm-hmm. playing bass, mm-hmm. stuff like that. There were all these obsessions, things like that, that mm-hmm. would just become fixated on and I would go into that for a year or two. So there was like around the dropout time was skateboarding. I was mm-hmm. crazy about that. And guitar was guitar was right around the time I was dropping out. Then after I dropped out, it was all skateboarding till I was about 17. Mm-hmm. And then snapped out of I really I think from the time 13 14 whenever I hit it till 17 18 I went in this shell and I somewhere around 18 I'm like all right I got to participate in society again mm-hmm. and it sort of leveled off and I started you know like That's what right. am I going to do now in an adult what was was your OCD kicking in at this point during 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 this these years like prior to eighteen? Were you did you? I mean, I know you probably weren't officially diagnosed maybe at that point, but were you? If you look back, you're like, yeah, I had OCD kind of during yeah. those years. Yeah. 
because of all that stuff, not just the obsessions of like a hobby, what would be a hobby for someone? I never, I still to this day hate the idea of a hobby. Yeah. I'm like, I love something, then you go off the deep end with it. Yeah. You stuck it, you go crazy with it. So I remember playing guitar. My older cousin had played guitar, he was pretty good, and he taught me something. I think it was like the Top Gun. Song for okay. Top Gun. Yeah, don't you mean? The yeah, the the for the girl. Yeah, yeah. I can't think of it, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. This like the major like riff of this song, but it was like more complicated stuff that I was not ready to do. Yeah. But I remember if there was something in a song, I would practice it. I remember sitting at my aunt's house for like two or three hours. I would go over and over to the point of being unhealthy, like you're beating something in the ground. Yeah. You're playing the same like riff over and over. Yeah. For two or three hours. You're not even getting better. You're making yourself worse somehow. Mm-hmm. And I did that with a lot of things. The teenagers that I look back on now, like, oh my God. Yeah. I was just like caught. It reminds me of that scene uh, in The Aviator with Howard Hughes where he gets caught saying something. Oh, and he repeats it. Yeah. Over. Yeah. It's like you're caught in this gear and you can't get out. You just like beat yourself. And it's this, this spiral. Yeah. Like you, you fucked it up. You got to do it again. Mm-hmm. You got to do it better. If you get it right the next time, you got to do it three times perfectly. Yeah. And all these numbers games yeah. I would do as a kid. Oh, yeah. And it just make the living hell, but I did that with a lot of things skateboarding, guitar, yeah. trying to be perfect and making it miserable and eventually ruining these things that I love. Mm-hmm. I mean, it became miserable. Yeah. Dreadful to do. Like putting too much pressure on it. So, yeah, now looking back, I see that in every thing that I, you know, guitar, mm-hmm. bass, uh, skateboarding. Mm-hmm. And it followed me in a comedy, I think, in a lot of ways. But yeah. well, comedy won't allow you to be a perfectionist. Yeah, true, very true, very true. keeps you going. Well, you know, it, it, you know, for the very little I know about OCD, the, you know, people, people seem to develop OCD because kind of everything around them is kind of chaotic and then they can control these little pockets. Like, it's an easy way to control. Like, if you play a guitar riff three times, you can control. Like, you're, you know, it's something that you can control. Do you think that if your dad never left and that, you know, you know, what what have you with, you know, you know, your, you know, your school situation, if your life was a little more normalized, you think that you wouldn't have OCD? Was the OCD from this kind of, like, my dad's on the picture, my mom's working all the time, and there's, like, maybe a sense of guilt because now that you're dropped out of school and you're, you know, and it's, like, was the OCD kind of your way of controlling all these other aspects of your life that you were not able to control because you're 16 years old? You know, I don't know. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I don't know if I've been able to get that deep with it. Mm-hmm. I, figured I think it would be a therapist with me or maybe you, like, seeing from the outside in because yeah. I, I don't know if it was. And then, but it started pretty early on. Mm-hmm. Get like that, and then just locked away. Work, yeah. Something I've always liked that, and then you know, I mean, maybe comedy's maybe functional because you have to do it in public. Uh-huh. There is no perfect in comedy, uh-huh. and so and I hate that, but I've learned to live with it. Uh-huh. Versus these other things, you can sort of with a guitar, you can lock yourself away. Yeah, very true. Try to search for perfect. Yeah, and make yourself crazy in the meantime. So, um, but um, yeah, I don't know where it all came from. But also, I don't want to blame it on my family because yeah. I think both my dad and my mom have two different types of OCD. Okay. My dad definitely had a different type of OCD. But I've never, you know, I hesitate to blame it on them. I'm going, why? Well, there's no blame, I yeah. I help it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I don't do that with my alcoholism. I yeah. do it with my OCD. Mm-hmm. Like, at some point, it's me. 
But I, I mean, yeah, yeah, I think my mom's side of the family is definitely neurotic, mm-hmm. has her own OD, and then my dad did too. So okay. So I, I don't know where it comes from, honestly. Yeah. But it's been there since the beginning. You know? Okay. No, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm just, I'm just curious. You know, I'm just. It's, it, I think these little things about comics lives are are are, are fascinating. And 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 since you mentioned it, I'll I'll bring it in. You know, you 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 um you do become an addict um with drinking and drugs and that kind of thing. How do you know how? How you became an addict? Was it was it was comedy the the reason? Was it just like because I know you said when you got sober it was like just getting used to going on stage without drinking or going back to the hotel room and being sober, like just like these things that were so abnormal to you. Like so, was comedy the reason? Just kind of like a way to get comfortable, and then all of a sudden, like slowly, it just keeps becoming more and more. It was it comedy, or was there other things that you know had you become you know made you become an addict? I think for a while, I, I, I drank late. My first drink was like at 19. Mm-hmm. First ever tasted alcohol, mm-hmm. maybe. And um, besides, my, I think my dad let me have a sip when I was a really young kid. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but when I was like, I didn't drink a beer was I was like 19. I remember mm-hmm. through my the, the dropout years, mm-hmm. you know, when I was 15, 16, antisocial. I remember that we were still in high school. They were drinking. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking they were losers, and I was sort of this, like, against it all. I didn't drink or do drugs. I wasn't trying to smoke weed. Mm-hmm. And then at 19, I had started to come back around again, and I got a girlfriend and um, some a different uh, group of friends that were good mm-hmm. dudes, but they were drinking, so mm-hmm. I tried it. And then, um, so at 19 to 21, I say there's, like, stages. 19, I dabbled, 19, 20. Mm-hmm. You still couldn't buy it legally, so... Yeah. Whoever could get it, I drink with them. We get mm-hmm. hammered a few times, but nothing crazy. At 21, I could buy it. That ramped it up a little more. Mm-hmm. At 22, I started comedy, mm-hmm. and then just I think the acts. Yes, to get on stage, it helped me. I definitely had a few beers in me before I went up. Mm-hmm. Every time when I started comedy, I just like went full on. That I started working at the club too. I started like working the front desk mm-hmm. and this like errand guy that would do anything in the club, and then lived and breathed everything and um also it was just like you know the managers the bartenders the waitresses everybody was older than me or, or drinking uh-huh. and it was free uh-huh. and once you do comedy on the road it's free so uh-huh. the access to it you know i've spent money ramped it up even more and made it more severe and then i just got carried away okay you know? okay so I mean, you know, I'm not going to go into kind of the, the the reason you stopped. I mean, there's, I mean, I think there's like four different podcasts that cover your yeah. cover yeah. your the cover your um um your 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 nine one one call, which is a crazy story. And I'm going to link yeah. I'm going to link that this podcast to this or whatever. But it's um, but I the the one thing that um came up during these things was uh you were in jail and you said you wouldn't call your mom. And right. right at the beginning of this conversation, one of the first maybe ten minutes of us talking, you said how like how much your mom has been like this this kind of like this north star for you in your life or whatever. So what about not like this was like this is when you needed somebody the most just to like maybe they could bail you out or say like hey, um, you know why why didn't you call your mom and say hey I, you know I, I I need a favor kind of thing, or your dad I know, even. I yeah. Yeah, I didn't want to like break her heart. You know, it was like one of those things that's very protective over her and still to this day. I mean, mm-hmm. to this day, 
and this comes from drinking day stuff, my mom's phone number is not like in my phone. Okay. I know it. I've got it memorized. Yeah. But I never put it in because I didn't want to hit, you know, mm-hmm. when I'm blackout drunk. Yeah. By mistake or someone to find my phone when mm-hmm. I lose. And so I always just wanted to keep her out of it. And I didn't want her to know any part of how I was living. Mm-hmm. And so to this day, yeah, it's still not in my phone. People okay. see it like my number pop up. And they're like, who's calling? That's my mom. They're like, she's not in your phone. I'm like, no. And so I know her number. I yeah. always remember it. And I don't have it. And I also did that for the club owner of the club I started at. Okay. I put his number in my phone for fear of like yeah. prank calling at 4 a.m. <laughs> losing all my work. Yeah. So it was like I was trying to protect myself, mm-hmm. you know, but. Um, no, you're really protecting them. Yeah. No, you're, pro- you're protecting them from you. And that's in your head. In your head, you're protecting yeah. them from you. But you, you would think that, I don't know what your relationship with the club owner is, but your mom would love you no matter if you called her, you know you know, shit in your pants hammered kind of thing. Like, you know, uh, yeah. so I, I guess, did your mother know that you had a drinking problem up until the, the arrest? Uh, um, just because I think, you know, I would go over and see her and I, you know, I'm sure I looked rough and mm-hmm. smelled like booze and, you know, yeah. the day after sometimes. And, you know, I was, you know, I look rough for a guy in his late twenties at times, you know, and, um, I've always had bags under my eyes yeah. when I drank. Yeah. There was no hiding it. Yeah. I looked. <laughs> yeah. I, like I was hurting. And so I think she had an idea. And then she, I found out after I sobered up, she called some of the guys that worked for the comedy club, like some of the, uh, the booker. Mm-hmm. So they've been there since the beginning of comedy with me and they asked them how I was doing. Yeah. He's drinking too much. And I didn't know this phone calls took place, but so there was some talk. Okay. But I, I thought maybe she was, I thought she knew that I was probably drinking or I had too much the night before, but I don't know if, she ever knew the full extent okay. of how bad it got. Okay. And well, she probably knows more than I do. We never had that conversation because I'm still like, I don't want to tell her all the stupid yeah. things that did, you know, or how, how many times I'd like could have died. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, so. it's, it, it's, it's sweet in a way. Like you're still protective of your mom. I don't know how old your mom is. I'm going to guess she's probably somewhere in her early seventies, but you know, you're still, you're still protective of her. I, I feel like, I feel like, I want to keep pushing this where you, you, you kind of assume your father's role, like you're protective of her. You kind of look at, I mean, do you feel like that? Do you feel like, do you, do you have a mother son relationship or do you have like a friend relationship with your mom? It's a mother son, but we've been tight. I mean, we've been there since like day one. So it's sort of like, she's the person I'm the tightest with yeah. in the world. Always be that way. So it was sort of through all those times. It was like, yeah, it's also the best friend sort of yeah. thing. And then, and, and, you know, early on, she maybe told me, like, things. I knew things about the divorce that, like, I don't feel like she ever shaped my opinion, but I knew details that maybe you wouldn't tell a kid. I don't know, yeah. but yeah. I'm glad I found out. Yeah. I sort of knew what was happening the whole time. And then my aunt and grandmother is sort of the same way where mm-hmm. they would tell me. Yeah. Back for me. Yeah. Great to me. So. Have you been there for yeah, your I mom? Am, I am protected. Yeah, as I was saying, like, have you been there? For, have, you, have you been in a situation where your mother was maybe wronged, or somebody was rude to her, or something like that, and you kind of jumped in? I, I, I don't know if that ever happened, but has there been that situation, like, like your mother became there was a tense situation with your mom and some other person, and you felt the need to step in and not let your mom fight that battle herself? Uh, no, I mean it's like the biggest thing. My stepdads have been like third marriage. Now. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um. The second stepdad, he was, 
he was great to me and a totally different personality type than my dad and my stepdad now. Yeah. So laid back. But I don't feel like they've ever done anything. I mean, it goes back to uh, all coming from my dad, uh-huh. who like the asshole and did uh-huh. some things that I still feel like, yeah, she still tells me things that I'm still, uh, that's more upsetting. But as far uh-huh. as anything like a new occurrence, I don't remember anyone really doing it. Yeah. So it was coming up after that relationship that I felt the need, but I've just always been, yeah, I guess, overly protective okay. in a way. Oh, well, that's good. I'm closer to her than anyone else. And we went through it differently than just mm-hmm. a mother son because there wasn't a dad there. Yeah. Day in, day out, moving around. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, through all that craziness. So, what, what has been your mom's attitude towards your stand up career? Like, you know, like when you first told her that I want to be a full time comic and like to now, even, even the part where she was calling the, the owner of the club asking about your drinking, like, what's kind of, has she, has she been supportive the whole way through, or was there times where you're like, I'm going on comedy, and she's like, eh, or when you're, the club owner's telling that you're drinking too much, and she's like, maybe you should stop, was, was it, has it been supportive 100% of the time, or has there been pockets where she's been, you can tell that she's worried about future endeavors for you? Well, I think, like, early on, probably at 22, when I started doing it, she's like, I'm, as she was supportive, but I sh- I'm sure she assumed it was another thing like skateboard guitar. Uh-huh. Just like, he's going to go off the deep. I don't know if she thinks about it this way, but um, I would think she does. Like, oh, he's probably going off the deep end with another thing that'll last uh-huh. a year. And then I stuck with that one. And then she was always really supportive. She came to shows like after a year or so. I didn't let him come out. I didn't want him coming out early uh-huh. on. I wanted to get good at it. Yeah. Or be able to have a good set. Yeah. I thought. Yeah. Um, before I out so a few months in they came out and then um and then she was like really supportive and then for the whole way the only time she worries you know in these last few years as you go on and you're 20 years in mm-hmm. there's no retirement and stuff so yeah. we still have these talks like it's still you know you know at 25 it's a little bit like all right you can change your course now at 45 you know i know she still worries it like you know it's not it's still not a stable profession and, mm-hmm. Don't have a you know there's no retirement there's no you know there's no pension yeah there's none of this you know? yeah and um so I know she still worries but she doesn't bring it up much honestly okay and um so. that's awesome that's cool man I'm, I'm tired of talking to comics and how support and and how supportive their parents are I thought it'd be totally <laughs> the other way around but everyone every comics parents are super supportive um all right so you let's have my mom on I'm sure she would be like. Maybe she'd prefer me to put something out. Sure. Well, I mean, there's there there there, there's that, but like you know, the fact that she doesn't put it on you, you know, there's there's a respect in that. There's a respect that she has, and there's space, and she treats you like an adult. She's not. If she kept on you, kept nagging you about whatever, then there was like, okay, there's this mother-son relationship that hasn't really moved past at the age of 15. But the fact that she like respects that you're, a, you know, still a comic after, even during all this going on right now, that I think that's admirable of her. You know, it's also the thing that too, my grandmother who I was close with too, mm-hmm. with all her doom and gloom talk yeah. about, you know, every day she could come up with a new hardcore story that would just bum you out or whatever. If you do this, to be careful, you get in the car, you'll get mm-hmm. killed, you go yeah. play football with those big kids, you might get killed, you're gonna, <laughs> it's too hot outside, you're going to have a heat stroke. That's how she talked. Yeah. But if you brought up, if I ever brought up, like, I want to be something, whatever, when I grow up, she's like, you can do whatever you want, <laughs> you can do that. Yeah. There was like these things of like, I was raised around cynical people, but yeah. they also encouraged me. That's awesome. You know? And we're supportive along, you know, the same time at the same time. So it's yeah, yeah it's interesting. That is yeah. interesting. Now, are you the only artist in your family? 
Yeah, everybody else pretty much had the same, like, yeah. Okay. Normal jobs. Okay. Cool, man. Yeah. So I, now I want to kind of get into the meat potatoes of this, which is how you write a joke. Almost if I'm there in the room with you while you create these create these jokes. Um, and I'm very intrigued to hear how this works for you because the, when I was looking at your clip, the one thing I forgot that you do is you talk for, like, you always talk. Like, there is, you don't let the audience, ca like, catch their breath. You are constantly I don't know if you, like you're constantly talking, constantly. Like, even you'll get a big laugh. You might, someone might miss like a little quip or a little, like a little p piece of wit or sarcasm that you're throwing out there. I would almost be interested to know how many words you speak in an in, a, in an hour long set because you're constantly, and it, it just, I, it, and it's just only something that I feel is a combination of the talent that the innate talent that you have. And combined with the hard work slash number of times you've done comedy, like I think there's this 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 blending of 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 where I would put you in this upper echelon of comics. I mean, yeah, you're one of my favorite comics, even including people like you know like Bill Burr and those kind of guys, because of how different you are and the fact that you have this style, which is like a machine gun, constantly talking. And constantly, and it's not just wasted words. It's not just like filler or just trying to like you're trying to meander to a segue or figure out. It's every word has a purpose, so it's extremely interesting. And so I kind of want to get into how these jokes kind of develop, and we can talk about some of the jokes that you have. Um, the bat, you know, your jokes are very self-deprecating, but almost if you're not quite sure, it, it comes off self-deprecating at first, but you're almost make it's almost making fun it's not making fun it's pointing out these kind of people that you got annoyed with in high school it's like hey yeah you're making fun of the bags under your eyes or you're making fun of your height but you're only making fun of it because people have no social grace and have said things to you so you're you're putting out society's kind of like oblivious nature to kind of you know stamp on your feelings and not really give a shit about how you know what comes out of their mouth and how you interpret it um, it com if it comes off self, I'm, I know I'm word vomiting here, but I'm just like a huge fan. So I'm like, it, it comes off like, hey, this is a self-deprecating joke. But you're, what you're really pointing out is society's ignorance and how and how like there's people need to be better than they are, kind of thing. Kind of going back to the annoying people in high school and how they've kind of followed you throughout your life and now come after you know come up to you at the end of your gigs. Now you can't seem to escape them. So when these conversations happen, when you when someone comes up to you and says something about the bags under your eyes and try to give you tips, you know, kind of these backhanded compliments, how are you capturing these ideas? Kind of like, you could talk about the physical mechanics of putting in a notebook or just like it stays with you or just kind of like, how do, how do you recognize what's a funny idea that could be good for stand-up? I think a lot of times, it's interesting we said earlier, like about having so many words or putting all these things. Mm -hmm. I think I'm always sort of like, I never thought about it early on as a formula. I just wrote the way that was right for me. But mm -hmm. I think early from like, Mike, I wrote so much. I was big on like setup punch and putting a ton of tags in, especially mm -hmm. early on. I think that was to save it. When you don't know what you're doing early on, you don't know if the first punchline is going to work. So I wrote all these sort of tags to save it. If the first one doesn't work, the second one will, the third one or whatever, and just safeguard it. And I didn't know even know I was doing that. So I always, like, early on was just had these big chunks and bits that it was almost like overriding. I was like, set up, punch, tag, tag, tags, mini tag again, change the angle on it, same uh -huh. topic, set up, punch, 
tag, and then you got a five six minute bit. Uh-huh. And I don't do that as much anymore, but I still love tags. But um, like topics now, like the stuff about my bags under my eyes. There's the stuff like too when you hear people saying stuff a lot, or people have mentioned it a couple times to me. People keep coming back, so I sort of uh-huh. get annoyed because uh-huh. the bags thing under my eyes came up a lot. Uh-huh. And I'm always I'm very fascinated with people. To this day, it's not just the bags come out where people are like you put some preparation H on your eyes. <laughs> and they'd always laugh at themselves. Yeah, I'm fascinated by people who like repeat jokes that've been told for 50 years and then still laugh at it. They didn't write it, <laughs> yeah. and they laugh at themselves saying it. Yeah, I'm like I don't know what you're impressed by. <laughs> you didn't write it, and then you're laughing at something that was told 60 years ago. I don't understand. You, you think no one's heard this is incredible to me. Yeah. You know, like these stock things that people say or whatever they do to slam you or make mm-hmm. fun of you. I'm like, if it was original, yeah. no one really is. I mean, come, other people are just happy doing things that have been said a million times and it really yeah. makes my blood go. Yeah. It drives you nuts. You hear it from different people in your life and over and over again. So once that starts happening, then immediately I find a way to try to just break so, it down and trash them. So so your jokes come from trends. If you notice that there is a trend of, of just something that is annoying, that, you know, may, that this person, that so many people you've witnessed do or, or, or actions that people take and they all seem to be same and they don't make sense and you're not sure why they do it, it has to, it has to repeat itself a few times and then you're like, okay, if, if, you know, if, if there's five people that are doing this or saying this thing to me or whatever behavior they have, then this is a, this is relatable and I can make a joke out of this at my expense. But right. really it's about how, how shitty of a person you actually are. Is that kind of where you go with kind yeah, of the origin yeah. seed of your jokes? Okay. And it's curious too, if like I'm fascinated by people and like what makes them tick or why they don't and maybe it's a comics brain now i've like been in the comedy so long and like you know we do this and like so being funny we got to come up with these things and they got to be different than other what's been said before otherwise it's pointless and to make it funny so when other people are just mm-hmm. happy saying these trite things not it angers me i'm fascinated by it yeah I don't know why they would even utter that or waste <laughs> the time or their day what they get from it yeah. saying shit like that so I, I don't know. I always come back to like stuff like that. I will always like probably have jokes just shitting on people, trying <laughs> to end these things, trying to stop people. It's not going to stop people from doing it. Yeah. But it's always stuck in my head. It gets stuck in my head. It's just like, what are you doing? Why? Why? Yeah. Why? Yeah. I think the example you gave was if someone comes up to you and, and, and is always fascinated by your height and you're, and you're, and you're like, why well, just on like, Oh, you're shorter than we like. Yeah. It's on a stage for the last hour. Like, yeah, of course I'm, I look yeah. taller. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it, it's, it's a fast- million times they said that. Yeah. But I think your ability to all this stuff is to, like every comic, this probably happens to, but your ability to identify it is I think what separates you. It's like the cream rises to the crop kind of situation where, where the crop is all these other comics that are in these situations that are similar to you, but you're one of the few that can recognize these kind of like trite comments and these, and why are, why do people feel the need to address things with me or bring up certain subject matter with me? So it's, it is interesting. Was this something like I mean, this, this kind of, um, this kind of very, you, I think you have a very, and even how vulnerable and open you are, you have been with me, even though we don't really know each other too well, you have a very good sense of who you are. And even you mentioned in a, in a, in a, in a, in a quote or a comment, I'm going to, I'm going to butcher here, trying to look for it real quick, but it's like, that your your 
your jokes have to be personal and unique. Like, you're not going to write a joke like Jerry Seinfeld writes a joke about a buffet. It's going to be something right. that you're going through or you witness firsthand or something that you've experienced a while ago that you need to address. So kind of like where where do where does like where does this this uh like give me some of your I don't know if this is the right way to say it but like give me some of your hacks or your or your tricks or tips that allows you to be as observational and honest with yourself as you are. I know that's asking you like to, to to break apart yourself and decode your DNA, but if you can kind of like help a comic like myself be more real with themselves and be vulnerable on stage with some of your shortcomings and that kind of thing, what is it that you do around those subject matter? I automatically like think, um, and this I, I don't know if this is good or bad that I do this. I probably make life harder on myself <laughs> and work harder that as soon as like. Um, if the world's talking about something, then I lose interest immediately. Uh-huh. So, you know, when Trump in office, I never really had that many Trump jokes. Because uh-huh. I'm like, people are putting out great Trump jokes or whatever. Well, whoever's uh-huh. president, they're going to have some great or whatever happened in the news. Uh-huh. Today. I don't really current event stuff because I feel like if it just, you know, I see it and I've written a couple things following my brain. I'm like, I feel like that's original and I'll put it out there, but I don't. Like a lot of comics are really good at that, but I'm always like, well, everybody's writing on the same topic. It's like a writing uh-huh. assignment now. I start to lose interest, but I'm not going to have a joke about the Super Bowl and now the presidential uh-huh. election and this uh-huh. and that because I feel like the chance of being hacky or saying something that's already been said are pretty high. Okay. And I want that. But if I have a story, my grandmother, no one knew my grandmother, but no other comic knew my grandmother. Uh-huh. These stories that she told me. Right. So I feel like you already start in an original place. Yeah. Harder to make funny. It's uh-huh. harder to make a story about your grandmother funny than about whoever's president or whatever uh-huh. happened in the news today. Most now you got to set up how your grandmother was, and uh-huh. you know you got to explain it, get this picture for people. But that's the stuff that I find interesting more than because I like. I mean, I just want to be original first, and then figure out make it funny. I mean, uh-huh. or or both. You know, and I just don't. Sometimes I'm not big on Twitter and stuff because uh-huh. I just like I feel. Like, it's current of any. I'm like, I want to fight with ten thousand comics yeah. on this topic. Yeah. Try to be the most clever guy. Yeah. I really just I want to find some, a topic that no comics are talking about, mm-hmm. and it get funny to people at yeah. comedy clubs. That's now I'm interested. So I start there, but that makes it really hard. And maybe I'm once again too stubborn for my own good because mm-hmm. you know I should maybe try my hand at writing things about current events, but I don't like it. Yeah. I just don't I want to make sure it's original, and it's me. Yeah, um, and, and then I, I don't know when things just pop in, like you know, or what I'm, like you said, what I'm annoyed by. But I do keep it personal. When I think back, a lot of times, usually I have something. If every year I'll have a joke about some member of my family, my grandmother, an experience, uh-huh. I go back and dip the old story there and make try to make some sense of it, and then put that on stage, and then the new jokes about. Whatever, but I, I, don't, I don't know if I even know my own formula. Like, are you, are you, like, is your father ever on the table or things that are just like super, you know, just super, the things that get in your head too much or whatever? Like, your grandmother is a, is a, is a positive role model in your life kind of thing, but your father not so much. So, like, your grandmother's on the table, but your dad, is it almost like a respect thing? Like, to be in my act, I almost need to, like, like you or have an affection towards you, and I don't have that with my dad? That's why he won't make it into my act? Uh, no, I don't think so. I would do both. 
like my grandma's in my act and then he didn't ever make it into one line a little bit and i'm mm-hmm. sure i made other comments along the way mm-hmm. but i haven't found something funny or what i want to say yet but yeah I, I, it's not off limits nothing's off limits good okay. or bad they both go in if i think it's original and funny i'll put it in yeah i'm not trying to steer clear of anything yeah. like that I, no. I what about your mom this protectiveness with your mom does she ever come into your act as like uh hey like she could be a butt of a joke or something zany that she does or do you still protect her in your act like even if she said something that's totally insane or whatever you'll never bring that up into a into a crowd full of people because that's not you're always protecting her kind of thing i would i don't know if i have mm-hmm. uh but i i feel like i would okay i mean I don't think I would ever trash her. I don't think she's done anything yeah. like, but she said something or we had a scenario. I think there was a time, there was a thing I tried to do. It was a bit that never took off. Mm-hmm. Of my mom, like, I mean, like, I, you know, I was sort of religious, but not like crazy religious. So yeah. My mom just doesn't curse that much. Yeah. She, you know, at traffic, she's in like really serious situations when she'll say shit or damn. Mm-hmm. I heard her say fuck a couple times in life. <laughs> yeah. But there was a thing I tried to work on. I remember... And I did do it on stage for a while, and I never got worked out as a bit or had really punchlines, but she mm-hmm. was just like, we were at the mall, and she was just like, do you see those girls in those school? She's like, every girl's wearing, like, short skirts now. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you like that? I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> girls in short skirts, I guess, Mom. It's very uncomfortable. <laughs> She's like, you can almost see their twats. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I knew my mom even knew the word twat. <laughs> And then I was like, she's like, what am I supposed to say? And I'm like, I mean, I don't know. I mean, like, <laughs> she's like, why? And I never knew she knew the word, and she just dropped that on it. So there was like a thing I was trying to work yeah. with her. You know, that was just like five years ago she said that. <laughs> and I don't even remember where I went from there, but I was like, so she's dropped these things. And so there's thing, it'll go in, you know, uh-huh. here or there. Not yeah. that they ever become tight jokes, but I'm definitely not ruling anything out. Okay. Do you, you do you, do you capture talking about the mechanics of it? Do you capture your ideas? Like, do you have a moleskin in your pocket that you capture ideas? Do you do voice voice the notes, or do you do like um, Evernote or something like that to capture ideas? Or is your mind constantly because it's so much of a repetitive thing? It's the same comment that's been brought up to you now six times to just stay in your head, and you don't need to write it down. Or do you always write down potential jokes somewhere? I used to carry like one of those moleskins everywhere or a notebook mm-hmm. everywhere, but you know, even moleskins get torn up or you yeah. lose them or a page rips out mm-hmm. and they're a pain in the, you know, if you're driving, mm-hmm. it's hard, you got to pull it over and try to write on your steering wheel. Yeah. And so like now that I, you know, iPhone, just put it in the notes. Mm-hmm. So do that. I can pull over. I can do it. You can do it anywhere. I'm on a plane. Mm-hmm. I don't have to try to find a pin. Bullet points. Or yeah. if I think of the actual line, I write it verbatim. Mm-hmm. And I have it in my notes, and then I always want to put it on paper, like, once I get somewhere, then, like, work it out, like, pen on paper. So, I have okay. a notebook, and then, like, sort of, like, two different types of notebooks. Oh, here they are. And, like, so that. Oh, nice. One, like, sort of fancy one that seems like more ideas that are closer to being worked out. And yeah. And, like, just a leak pad is just for, like, really rough ideas. Okay. And then set lists. And bullet points and stuff like that just go on my phone. And in index cards, I'll take index cards if I'm really having trouble remembering. Like for roast jokes, when I was doing those roast yeah. jokes, take index cards. And then, you know, even when I did these shows a couple of weeks ago, first ones in a year, yeah. I just put bullet points on index cards on the stool. Okay. Like glance. Yeah. And um, 
that's it just so i can see the topic and then i can go from there uh -huh. um so that's the way i do it it's sort of and i'll do that too i just take index cards on the way to a show i also have them on my phone and so i just look at it and just like try to go look at the topic do you remember it what is it you're going to do so and put it out there and then that's basically it. It's, it's, a lot of it goes in the phone, though, like day to day. It's very kind of interesting to me that, so do you, let me ask you this, do you work out, I mean, your jokes are bullet-pointed, sometimes you're, if you know the line, you'll write the line, but are you, do you work a lot of new jokes out on stage then, versus preparing them ironclad before you go up there? Um, I try to have at least, like, what I think is the first punchline. Okay. Talk it out a little more. I mean, I don't, yeah, I, I like to have something. And then try to talk about it or tag it to a bit that's already going. And then so I like if I can tag if it come it naturally goes after another bit uh -huh. easy up you can ride that wave into it uh -huh. and then try the first punchline if that works then I'll try to get more out of it try to get more out of it until it fizzles and then like all right let's move on it's starting to you know taper off and I'll do it like that. Um, but I always do that, and so I'll try it here or there, and just like set up, punch, try to get a tag on the fly. Okay. So I've got two, a set up, punch written down, and I'll try to get one more line, you know, while you're on stage and your brain's really like clicking and the adrenaline's going. Try to get it there. That's better than sitting in your bedroom or a uh -huh. hotel room when you're half asleep trying to find that tag. So yeah. I'm like under the pressure, give yourself a few seconds to see if it comes out. And a lot of times it does. Uh -huh. So a lot of tags are written on stage. Uh -huh. That's interesting. That that's so fascinating to me because it's co comedy in your life is almost like this separate bubble because here you are with OCD and you have and you're and you're constantly doing the same riff on your guitar until you get it perfect. But with comedy, you're like I got a general idea. Uh, that's 50%. I'm going to do the other 50% on stage in front of an audience. You it's I would almost have thought and I even wrote down here that you would have written everything word for word before you even they would read like a transcript prior to you trying it out on stage. But that's not the case you're saying. No, I'll take it with the wording. I mean, I think I probably used to think it used to be verbatim and now mm -hmm. I realize like my OCD um it's just like with comedy. Uh -huh. My OCD with comedy used to be more than just like trying a new joke was once a joke was worked out and it was working that it had to be so precise and I had to nail it every time and uh -huh. I put too much pressure on myself. And now you realize like the blemishes and the mistakes are part of it too. Uh -huh. You're a human being to jokes. So even though it's an OCD sufferer, it sucks when you, you forget a line or flub a line. You're uh -huh. like, oh, but sometimes it makes it better. Yeah. You realize you're an authentic human being. <laughs> It's better than you just reading this speech to them yeah. and being perfect with every word. Uh -huh. Like that's not what they're paying to see. Uh -huh. um, it's some state of the union address. So it's, <laughs> I realized that late in the game that you know maybe it'll sloppier is better at time because I don't, you know, I don't want to just be um 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 uh -huh. um. But it's time, you know, it doesn't have to be just perfectly polished, and you can sort it out. And people, when you're sort of searching for things, people are like can see your brain work and that's how people talk how okay communicate. how we do it on this podcast yeah so i'm like it be more of that on stage so i've allowed myself in the recent years to just like just not just focus on the wording but also work on just like the connection and being natural uh -huh. it's just as important as nailing this line i mean there are times where it needs to be verbatim it yeah only work verbatim uh -huh. and then there's other lines that you can sort of cheat or go i don't feel like saying it that way tonight and it'll still sort of work okay from bit to bit, line to line, I just figured out, like, 
experiment like can't tinker with that one too much once it's done it's done and then these other things i can do a little more loose so sort of case-by-case basis of like yeah some bit tight some loose but yeah overall i don't do i only do verbatim when i'm like really like it's there but it's clunky Uh i'm putting too many words in and once i remove it and it hits i'm like all right write it down verbatim that's the way that worked commit it to memory and then do it from that do it that way from here on out okay cool well, I mean, so I, I, I actually, there was a little bit, in an interview you did, there, a little bit of your routine, uh, you, you, you mentioned kind of, we got we have a little bit of routine from a few, few years ago, and see if it's still applicable and what's changed or whatever. You go, um, I need to be alone and zone out a few times a day to find something good, whether, it's, whether it be a brand new premise or a tagline. I glance at my notes before I leave my apartment, get in the car, take a nap, searching and jotting ideas in short bursts. Is that still how you write? Is it still... Five like it's is it almost like you just like completely in an isolated like ec, you know echo chamber for you know for x, x amount of time and then like five minutes of hardcore writing and then you leave and go do like some random task that's nothing to do with comedy that's still your your routine yeah I still like it I mean this whole thing of like I think I'd be better served of like you know I I always think oh I should sit down and write for two or three hours and have every intention and I've set the time aside and then you know, 10, 15 minutes in, uh-huh. even if I got an idea and I'm really writing on it, I can almost feel when it ends. And then I still try and still try to pull something out of it. Um, but I feel like the good idea is over. Now I can will sort of technical things like, okay, go trim it up now, go edit it. But uh-huh. the idea and my excitement for it's sort of fizzled now. So let's put it down, come back later tonight, tomorrow, and I'll have something else for it. I, I do it like that now. These short bursts mm-hmm. is the way I do it. I mean, Cut it. Do you, so do you record yourself every time you perform? Like, how do you, I mean, if, I mean, you're a headliner, so you're doing 45 to an hour, and you're doing them three to four times a week. Do you record yourself and listen to it, or are you just going, I'm hoping that my if my brain won't fail me and will remember if I said a really good line that I made up on stage, I can, you know, how do you, how are you, getting those gems that are stage only and not written down prior. I record every set, just, okay. you know, audio mm-hmm. on the iPhone. And uh, so every set, every set, short set, headline sets, all of it. So on my iPhone, I don't know how long I've had my phone. Mm-hmm. It's, it has every set I've done. Okay. And something happens, you know, to the recording, but yeah, every set. Mm-hmm. And then I'll go through and listen with headline sets. I don't really go back and listen. I got a feeling when you get off stage from like a headline set, I'm like, here's where the trouble was. Uh-huh. I can remember it's like an imprint on your brain. You're like, uh-huh. yeah, that one joke, the third joke in, screwed that up or it didn't feel right. And then like 30 minutes in, that other bit, you just know it by topics. And so uh-huh. instead of listening to the whole set, I will sometimes just fast forward to that. Go, okay. Did I screw it up? Uh-huh. Was I talking too fast? Did I say something I didn't mean to say? Whatever. Was it that I slurred? Did I, uh-huh. you know, trip over a word? What was it? And then I'll go through and look at the bad points like that. And a lot of times it came from, like, recording myself because I'm so OCD uh-huh. that you know, when I didn't record, I'd have these sets that I thought were the worst thing in the world. They were probably mediocre. Maybe I did bomb, but it would help me talk myself off the ledge of thinking uh-huh. I was the worst comic ever. Uh-huh. you don't have any record of it, no way to go back and listen to your mistakes. Uh-huh. You just think... You, ate shit for 45 minutes yeah and really you screwed up a joke and you didn't let it go and it made another joke and you were distracted by your screw up and it made the next few jokes bad so i was able to go back and start listening to it and like calm down Uh 
you know that you fucked up one joke. Yeah. Fix it. Do it better tomorrow. And this stuff was good. So mm-hmm. I'd look at the bad, look at the good, and overall you'd be like, all right, calm down. It's all right. Yeah. Fix that. Fix that. And make it better for tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And it helped. And it really was a way of like just talking myself off the ledge. All this self-loathing mm-hmm. we all have. And yeah. OCD. Just when you have no recording of it, your imagination goes crazy. Yeah. And you just start tearing up apart. And like, exactly. It's rarely that dream. And even when you do bomb like mm-hmm. really hardcore, like, you know, this is why how my voice changes. Like, yeah. No one's laughing. You can hear the discomfort or the nerves or, you know, the anger, all yeah. that stuff. And sort of study it, like how to calm myself down and when I'm at my funniest. Like sometimes I'm just not in the mood to do a show and like I'll listen to old recordings of like when I did well. Mm-hmm. And on the, on the mood to do a good set, I sort of hear my cadence of like when I'm funny. Yeah. And then I get in the mood to do comedy. Yeah. Like, that's when you're fun. Mm-hmm. That's when you're excited to do it. Exactly. Now do that tonight. And it gets me in the mood to do it. So Yeah, let, let's talk about the fixing. You're like, hey, that needs fixed. Let's talk about your fix. Um, wh- what are you doing to fix it? So a, a joke, a, you tell a joke. It, it, it's a newer joke. Let's not do an older one because you're probably like bad audience or whatever. But, um, but uh, a, a, a newer joke, how do you fix it? Bef- you know, like tell me, tell me your process of like it didn't go what, like, like you thought. Do you rewrite with like the opposite angle or do you like, do you like remove, if it was like a conversation that you have with somebody, do you make it then a conversation between two other people that you observed? Like what are some of your different, you know, hacks and habits or whatever that you might do to fix a joke? The big one is like I said before, like the, what's the setup? Is it mm-hmm. muddled? Is it funky, cluttered, too many words? That's usually a lot of the problem. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I like obscure stuff, too. Mm-hmm. I like it, which a lot of times won't work, that I'll try these references that are just too obscure, or they're not used to hearing it that way. So it's more confusing than it is funny. It might mm-hmm. be funny to me, but they're like, what? They yeah. don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. So mm-hmm. I'm obscure I'm being in, like, some punchlines. And um, that's what I do first. Like, the setup... And then make sure I just really, the punchlines are like tightened up. I mean, I don't know. People always say this like word economy thing. Mm-hmm. I truly don't know. I've never like read a joke writing handbook or anything. Yeah. Probably I should. <laughs> and I know comics that are mass like technicians that just yeah. know how to like whittle down these jokes to the fewest words. But mm-hmm. I will always like probably use too many words and I want to, but I, I go to the extreme. So I originally like just um, a simple setup for me. But I also don't like saying things so plainly like it sounds like any generic human being up mm-hmm. there saying it. Yeah. So sometimes I'd rather say crestfallen than heartbroken or disappointed. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like a word like that. Yeah. I like using words like that occasionally. Not to be fancy or like I'm so smart, but it's just like it sounds better to me. Yeah. But sometimes you run the risk of them being like, some people have never heard the word crestfallen. So <laughs> like they pause to be like, <laughs> sometimes you just gotta say I used, I had a joke a long time ago where I used to say neurosurgeon and it uh, this is like 15 years ago I used to say like, neurosurgeon and I had to say brain surgeon to make the joke work <laughs> it still pisses me off because <laughs> well, I want to say neurosurgeon Yeah, people have pause to go Neuro, that's the brain guy yeah, yeah. I, I, you just gotta put it 
And that, that's kind of what I mentioned that I, I, I so admire about you are these words that you use. I mean, you just made an example of the crestfall. I mean, like this, you you're, you are like this artist that paints. When, when, when a stand-up tells jokes um, and, and I'm listening to a stand-up comic tell jokes and, and I'm laughing at them, I, it's mostly because I'm I, like, I can relate to the situation they're in or if they're making fun of themselves, I can say, oh, I can, you know, that's kind of, but with you, I can vividly picture the situation that you're putting yourself in. You, you, I mean, like I said, the, the fact that you used, when you talked about exhibition of sex and you're talking about, like, mule kick in the sheetrock, how the fuck did you get mule kick in the sheetrock? Like, that, like, tell me, like, how do you get, I know you have this, this AP English, you know, kind of way of thinking, you know, you were this, you know, this honor student English kid in, in eighth grade, but tell me, like, how are you, what do you do to like, I mean, when you write it, are you writing the jokes on the first draft with these imagery words, or do you take like, hey, this is too plain, like you said, what can I, what can I, how can I say this better? Do you take, is that a conscious effort to do it, or is it just natural for you to write that way? I always think it's like, well, I think about it the most basic way first, and then I, or if, if you're trying to explain something violent, mm -hmm. you know, people all know what you could start with, mm -hmm. with like someone getting in a fist fight or this or that slapped hit this thing, these very basic things. But then you always think of almost these cartoon versions of like, what would be the most insanely violent thing? If you're like mule kick into a sheet rock yeah. or like hitting here with a boat or was another part. Yeah. Yeah. Or like Wahoo chopped, which was an old wrestling move from about 30 years ago. Yeah. That's all in there because I think of like, What's better than the, just the standard, whatever topic you're on, just the mm -hmm. run-of-the-mill, right in the middle? What paints a picture of the most insanely, if it's violent, thing that would happen that's mm -hmm. surprising? Yeah. Absolutely ridiculous yeah. to see if you saw it in your life. And it already makes me laugh because you can picture it. So it already is like, Jesus Christ, how far yeah. do you have to go to that point? And it's already... That's where I sort of go. So I just don't want to say it in a very basic way. So it starts there. Yeah. I know what I'm trying to I mean, it's genius. Energy. It's absolutely genius. And, and it's, it's very, it's, it's, it's next level. It's, it's next, it's next level writing. And I'm trying to figure out how, if I wanted to be, if I wanted to kind of not mirror what you do, but if I wanted to kind of make my jokes more intellectual sounding, what would you say I should start doing? Like, what are some of the things that you do to keep like this great way of, of, you know, vast vocabulary? I mean, what, what are some of the things that you, you do to make sure that, um, your words are, are, you know, post college, post high school kind of words kind of thing. I always just like find, like, don't say it the standard way. Just don't say anything. Whatever it is, is always try to find, I don't know, something a little more surprising. So I don't even really know my own formula for it, other than mm -hmm. just saying, there's just a better way of saying it. If there's a fist fight, there's a better way. Of, yeah, I don't know. The yeah. standard way, unless that's the setup, you need to convey there's a fist fight or something like that mm -hmm. to get to something else that's more interesting. needs to be more extreme mm -hmm. and sort of surprising and funny. So it's just something they never could have seen coming. Yeah. So I try to do that with words, like that bit you're talking about. Yeah. So it's wahoo chop. If someone gets hit in the ear yeah. with a boat war. Yeah. Or you will <laughs> kick them to drywall or sheetrock. By the way, I've had debates about that, like that line, say, uh, 
of which way if it goes mule kick in the drywall mule kick in a sheetrock oh you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. so I just played with those two. What's the best way to say it? And so, but I mean, I always like just some extreme version, but I, I don't like have, I don't know if I have any process. I think my brain just naturally goes that way now. Of like, what's the standard way to say it? Ridiculous. <laughs> what makes the picture that makes me laugh. Yeah. Of like, what would I like to see? Because I think life is boring in a lot of ways, and we never mm. see these things, the things we describe in jokes. So if it happened, it's fucking crazy. Yeah. So I always imagine that, of like, how do we get there? Instead of someone just fist fighting yeah. or whatever, it goes. Kind of going now to when the joke is done. Now, I, I, I say that loosely because... Uh, another quote you said, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't like to assign any blanket rule or lifespan to each story, but it comes down how I feel when I say it. If it seems forced, I drop it. If it flows, it can stick around for a while. But do you, is, I saw, it seems like your act, like, so it seems like your act will always be your act. No joke, like gets officially retired, but do you revisit old bits and see like, if there's something you can more do with it, or is it more like it's done as far as running is concerned, but as far as me telling it, it's not done. Yeah, that's right. Like, yeah, I feel okay. like some, I'm just not been writing anymore on it, but I mean, if something falls into place on stage, I'll, yeah, of course. Okay. But you know, um, there's like jokes that, yeah, that last and they're done. And then there's some that I shelf, mm -hmm. you know, I do them for a year and a half. And then I'm like, I can't take it. I just dread it every time I do it. Yeah. I shelf it for two months. Yeah, and, you know, it comes alive again. Yeah, what's coming when that happens? I think that means it's on its way out, though. Yeah. Well, what what's your theory around comics like Louis C.K. and Jim Gaffigan, who every year have a new hour? Is that do you feel that um, like yeah, they could probably it's not their best. You know, they could do more with it. It's not their best hour. Or do you or do you like subscribing to that theory where you try to have a new hour every year? I mean, I think it's two different, like the they, way they live and the way the level they're at is different mm -hmm. than any of us. So it's sort of like, I mean, if we were in their position, I would probably do it the same way. We want mm -hmm. to do it the same way. But when you're like a touring road comic that can't bomb, mm -hmm. otherwise you don't get booked again. Yeah. You can't ditch 45 minutes every year. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? They mm -hmm. can ditch it and disappear and write for months on end and work on it in the city and, you know, two minutes here, two minutes there, piece it together take mm -hmm. months off, get up and do guest sets, bomb. There's no consequences, but like that, that just fuck around. And so, yeah, um, I respect the way they do it. And I would love to do that, but yeah, I think you have to be famous to do it that way. Okay. I mean, now, you know, if you're a road comic, you would have to have a 45 minute set that could kill every week. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know. I think it's wrong to keep some set that you did 10 years ago. So over the course of two and I, I did it. I thought my buddies like, uh, over the course of two and a half years, I would have a new 45 minutes for an hour. Okay. Usually that was, my, I didn't even strive for that. I was just like, keep writing, mm -hmm. remove, you know, remove the ones you hate. And then are you tired of saying, and put the two or three new ones in, in the regular rotation. And over the course of two and a half years, you have a new 45. Yeah. Do, do you, um, how, how often do you, do you have, do you write every day? Do you have, I mean, I know you write in short bursts, but do you write every day? You... Uh, no, I like it's on the to do list to write every day, but mm -hmm. I don't. Okay, I mean I understand like now is probably an exception to the rule because of how crazy 
things are right now. But I'm talking about normal times, 2017, 2018, 2019. You know, you're on the road, but I know, so I know it's like demanding enough just to travel and then do shows. But where you know, are like what? When was it opportune for you to write? Was it weekly? Was it just like when you could? What did you force yourself? Like, hey, I'm gonna go back. I'm gonna spend you know between one and two o'clock in my hotel writing, or kind of. Did you have any way of doing it other than just spontaneous? Um, I would do it. I don't know if I had a set plan. I would always like um, every day when I was doing shows, I would always look at the notes on my phone. So, mm -hmm. you know, walking to get coffee in New York when I get up in the morning, when your brain's like still fresh on the way to get coffee, mm -hmm. I would just sort of look at my notes, think, 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 get coffee. Now you got caffeine on the way back. See if anything's coming. Sit down, look at them a little more. Mm -hmm. Something came or you thought of something on the way, jot it down. And then just keep it going throughout the day. Okay. And then, you know, no matter what I'm doing, I just sort of like jot it down. And then when I really got some time, I sit there and work it out. And whether that's at 1 a.m. or after lunch, whatever, I would sort of do it. Um, okay. And so when I, and then I think a lot of times I would write, if I was going out, even like New York, where I maybe didn't even have a spot or meeting friends at a show, I, sometimes on the train, I would always go, what if you, someone, lets you go up tonight what if you can go up they ask you to go up or something mm -hmm. I, so on the train i sort of start playing like if i were to go up tonight what is the new joke i would put in okay what's the set i would even yeah. if i'm not going up and yeah. so you sort of get that nerves like pre-show nerves anyway because yeah. you're on the way to a show and i would yeah. play that with my head a lot of times okay and so i sort of like i'm on a train i should be looking at my notes mm -hmm. trying to fix something and get ready and be ready just in case yeah so i do that a lot yeah because um, i think there's different levels to like Writing in your apartment or your mm -hmm. house at 2 p.m. and then writing when the nerves kick in. Yeah. At least for me. Yeah. On the way to a show, like these heightened senses, and you're like adrenaline starts going, and sometimes your brain's firing faster. Mm -hmm. and sometimes you're like, shit, I'm gonna be on stage in 30 minutes. I better have something. Yeah. I better come up with it. Sort of comes out that way. And then on stage is another level. Yeah. Of like awareness and like. Okay, everything's firing now, so your brain's working there. So I try it all those different ways. So just half asleep, pre-show nerves, yeah. on stage, people staring at me. I think you should try it in all those to write in all of those. Okay, and, uh, that's great. That's that's why I love uh, this is the, this is what I love to hear stuff like that. Um, do, do do your jokes then? So when 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 they're kind of classified as done or or you know like what I what you sent me with the Gotham clip, you know those jokes have been worked out, you know you know X amount of years. Do they always stay in that bullet point format, or do they become more formalized like a transcript once they get to that you know kind of like check this is the final version of this joke or they all are they only really written down once in that bullet point and that's how they are all are always are yeah pretty much like that okay you know, like bullet point, that's it okay Most of it, I mean, no they're not written out verbatim anywhere okay you know i mean yeah um unless someone would ask for it but no it's just like I, that that joke's so wired or ingrained in my head now uh -huh. that it was just you know that's bullet points. If I have a bit yeah. about it, I have a, like a Range Rover bit that I've been doing uh -huh. forever. That thing it's just Range Rover. And okay. Now, then it's like second nature and all of that. And then you know sometimes I still go back and try to rewrite a bit. Uh -huh. I don't go way back. I don't go ten years back and try to rewrite those bits. But uh -huh. a bit a year ago that was sort of okay, but I never got it. It was never great. Uh -huh. I'll try to fix those. Okay. Recent bits, but never, I don't want to go digging through notebooks from 12 years ago. Yeah. I have no interest. I'm not the same person I was then. Mm -hmm. Those ideas, you know, um, 
but occasionally there's a line here or there or um yeah something that maybe never got on stage that i've been frustrated with and then i finally get it out this year i've been thinking about it for a year but yeah <laughs> awesome so what um what will validate you that all this sacrifice was worth it i mean you've been on gotham tv you, you you're 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 a nationally touring headliner but is there something that has eluded you thus far that will be like all these years of shitty road gigs and you know bed bug infested hotels and and whatnot you know my my you know my alcoholism all this crap that you've gone through is there something, some goal that you have not yet achieved yet? Or if you have it, then that's great. But that would be like, all that was worth it. All that bullshit and all that crap was worth getting getting to this point. Is there something like that for you? I don't know. It's not fortune and fame stuff, but mm -hmm. it is more money. I mean, mm -hmm. it would be like better to, to make a substantial living from it where you can have a little bit of breathing room mm -hmm. and then just focus on the work instead of so much of like, living hand to mouth yeah and such a desperate sort of and like that but overall the comedy is it's pretty like unstable so there's been so much focus on just staying alive financially okay comedy that that's i would like to get to the point where you could really just completely focus on the work and it's not and have a little bit of stability would that validate the whole ride i mean you still would like to have some kind of body of work after you're done whether that's a bunch of albums or mm -hmm. you able to get a special Something like that would feel good too, and uh, following. And whether that's forty people in every city mm -hmm. or a thousand, yeah, people that paid specifically to see you, yeah, to create some kind of they want to see you and not just whoever's up there that night mm -hmm. would validate a lot of this. That like, okay, you did carve out something, yeah, that people want to see instead of not you're just the guy there this week. Yeah, you know. No, I think that's so, like what we all yeah, what we all desire to get to, yeah. Your best year in comedy, how much money did you make? Um there were a few years like that, probably like off no merchandise 40 maybe. Oh nice. 40. Okay. Like straight road gigs. Just nice. all road gigs, no merchandise, nothing. Yeah. Okay. Just gig 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 gig, no other money, no yeah. Huh. But Okay. Um, I did that for a few years, so just doing it the hard uh -huh. way. Uh -huh. Still not enough, you know. Yeah. But, well no, thanks for thanks for answering that. I have two things I really want to touch on that I didn't get a chance to touch on with you with. Do you have they're kind one's one's kind of general, the other one's kinda of deep. It's up to you. If you want to get out of here, I totally understand. I wanna be respectful of your time and everything, but um let's do both all right dude which one do you want first do you want to kind of like the career question or you want the deep question first Get a career let's get the career, career one. all right so so you spent at one i remember in an interview you spent 49 out of 52 weeks on the road how did you start getting booked to do road gigs i mean i've been doing this for seven years obviously you're more i mean this is you know more hardcore for you I, i'm in Pottstown. you are in new york city um um, you take it way seriouser than I do, but it's like, what is like, how did you start getting booked? Did you have an agent? Did you self do it? What is it that you did to start getting booked to get booked all, every week of the year, except for three? Um, well, it started at a different time, different era uh -huh. that I started. And I sort of by, by luck started Charlotte, North Carolina does seem like a good place to start, but it was in 98 because the guys that ran the club here also booked a ton of stuff all over the Southeast. Uh -huh. And so they had a lot of road work. And so once I got a little bit of time, they were eager to push people out. They needed people 
2008, 2000, 2001, people were still give you a hotel as an MC in some gigs and money, pay out of town MCs and definitely features. So I was able to get on the road pretty fast. Okay. And, and then through that, my local club booked a ton of stuff, shitty one nighters, good weeks, you know, good weeks in Charlotte and Jacksonville. Then I'd get in a club in Atlanta on my way to the gig in Florida. I do a guest spot in Atlanta, get in that club mm-hmm. and do that with, you know, on my way to something, I would do a guest spot in Ohio, get work there. And then the buddy would refer me to the club in Des Moines. And so, you know, the first few years from 98 to sort of get on the road, probably 2000, 2001. And by two was featuring uh-huh. all over the place and then started co-headlining, headlining in 05, 06. And um, so then it just went everywhere. So at that time, I think it was a different time then. And you could just get in a car uh-huh. and go feature week to feature week. They all put you up uh-huh. and either the money was still garbage, but you could go week to week. If you had four or five weeks, you know, you go make a couple grand, two, three grand. Yeah. And then go do solid week, do a week in Des Moines, a week in Wichita, a week in Kansas City. Yeah. A week wherever in Oklahoma City, then come back to the east. So it made sense that you drive your car way up uh-huh. in the middle of the country and do it and uh, lived in condos. So that's the way I did it. I don't think it can't be done that way now because uh-huh. they don't get features hotels and uh-huh. there's not that amount of the gig. The weeks were also longer, you know, in 2002, three, like there were a lot of Tuesday through Sunday clubs or at uh-huh. least Wednesday through Sunday. All the funny bones were Wednesday through Sunday. Punchline Atlanta was Tuesday through Sunday with a three show Saturday. Oh, now, wow. All that's been it's a lot of Thursday, Friday, Saturday stuff. Now. Yeah. Yeah. And so the weeks are shorter, the money's lower. And uh-huh. so, you know, you can't, you had out too many off days. But back in the day, you finished Des Moines, you had a day or two off before you started in Kansas City. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Now, if so, if, if you kept going, you get a ton of shows. Yeah. Now, in the situations where you were um, getting booked by the, um, like a, you were in a guest spot at a club, maybe that wasn't booked by your club, but a buddy was like, hey, there's a, you know, whatever here tonight, come and do a guest spot. Did you always make it a point to talk to the booker after, if the, you know, if obviously you did, you killed, did you make a point to talk to the booker? Like, hey, my name's Paul Hooper. Is there a way that I can, you know, I feature for whatever, you know, Zanies or the Looney Bin or, or, or Caroline's or whatever. Is there a way I can get in your club? Or would you just hope that that booker would come, come to you first? I would usually was like, beforehand it was you know my buddy referred me uh you're in memphis then you can do this spot here he already talked me up uh-huh. saying oh he does well in these other club before and so if you have a good set a lot of times in that day and age you could get books and you got off stage that happened oh, wow. more than once where they would you know that they would just be like come back to the office and give you a week which i don't feel like yeah. i don't know if that happens anymore and um or it's like, hey, we're not booking out Sandra Vales and stay in touch. And it's that whole game for a year. Yeah. And sometimes you chase it around a lot of times and yeah. then eventually get booked. But it was a lot of times, yeah, going in, they know why you're there. Okay. You're traveling through. And, you yeah. know, and so okay. you get on stage, it's either, yeah, and give you a week. Or if you have a mediocre set, you're like, ugh, yeah. I don't know. Okay. And okay. stay on them. So it was that a lot in those first years. That's early 2000s I did that. It worked out a lot. Okay. Just didn't have to do five minutes, eight minutes, whatever they say, nail the time. Yeah. Kill or do good enough with whatever crowd's there and then hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Cool, man. 
All right, now for the deep question. All right, so this was supposed to, I was supposed to sandwich this in before, but it didn't really get a chance to come up. But um, talking about the road and and all these weeks that you did in there, you 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 mentioned on several interviews about how this like damage, you know, you had some, you know, this damages your relationships. Um, so kind of you and you talked about like you put you would put there was a time once you got sober that you would put stand up. Stand up was all you were almost dating stand up, and then your girlfriend at the time was almost like you know, your, your side chick kind of thing. Like you would see her when you had the time. Um, so n- knowing what you know now, would you have done any of that differently? Was what, would, would you still, if you could go back in time with everything, you know, now, would you repeat the same scenario or would you, or did you feel like you missed out on kind of like being the married guy with kids or anything like that? Um, what's kind of your thought around that now? No, I don't feel like I missed out. I, I mean, I think it was the right time. The girlfriend, I think, that was like, um, "Sorry, people are texting me." I'm not showing up. With it. We're, we're almost done. This is the last. This is the last thing. So, up on the screen, is it? No, no, no. I don't see anything. No. Okay, good. Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, we got to put in airplane mode. <laughs> um, no, I, I don't like when I look back. Do I regret? Mm-hmm. No, I shouldn't have been married to her at all. Yeah. Okay. And. Um, but I, that was also coming off like bride. It was my first girlfriend right mm. after I sobered up. So mm-hmm. I feel like I need to make up for lost time in comedy. Yeah. I didn't apply myself. Didn't do it as much as I could. So I was drunk and part. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, I feel like I didn't apply myself to mm-hmm. my drinking years. So I had to make up for lost time. And so she really, it was a bad time to get in a relationship. I shouldn't have done it. And she really, you know. I had to go through because she was way down the list of things and priorities and I mm-hmm. was taking every gig I could. Yeah. So we moved in together and I was, you know, if there was a fallout, someone's like, can you be take it? Yeah. I'm just telling her like unapologetically, like I got to do this. Yeah. This is why I make a living. Yeah. I, I can't turn down things. Yeah. And so, no, it's terrible for a relationship, but no, in hindsight, I feel bad. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should have been together that time, mm-hmm. but. At the same time, no, I don't think I lost a soulmate in that way. Yeah. She married someone else yeah. and we weren't, you know. Yeah. You know. Do, do you still see that as a possibility for you that you at one day Paul Hooper will be married and have two kids and a dog and a fence and live in the suburbs of New York and still be a full time comic? Is that something that you hope that will that will happen to you? I don't know. I mean, you know, sometimes I think of having, whether it be a girlfriend, a wife or whatever, I could see that mm-hmm. um, for long term. And it, but I've never thought about kids as I get older, maybe a little bit softer where I'm like, maybe, oh, having a kid would be all right. But I'm yeah. 45 and I'm like, I still feel like it's a risky thing, especially now mm-hmm. financially coming out of a pandemic and, you know, bank accounts been decimated. So mm-hmm. it would be insane to do it now. And yeah. so now you got, you know, next few years now i'm a 50 year old man having a family maybe yeah i always had a joke back in the day that i'd say i would have a kid if i had five million dollars after taxes mm-hmm. per kid i wanted five million in the bank <sighs> and i know it's a ridiculous thing to say but i sort of feel like if i got myself to a place where i was financially stable and i was like in a relationship that's secure with then yeah i yeah. would consider it okay is it something i dream of i need to have i don't feel like no it's not something i yearn for i'm like i gotta you know yeah, uh, have that. I would like to meet, you know, have someone yeah. spend some time with, but whether that's a wife or a girlfriend or whether that means a kid or not, I yeah. don't know. I've never dreamed of having kids. Yeah. But I, 
you know. But it's not a hard no either. Point. Yeah. Right. Not yeah. anymore. It used to be a hard no yeah. in my 20s and 30s. Now I'm like soft and like, maybe, but yeah. then want to be a 55-year-old guy. You know, you so. say that, dude. I, I had a friend in high school um, uh, whose father, it was, her sec- it was his father's second marriage, and he was 61 when he had this kid. He actually still alive. He was like, uh, he's like the doctor that delivers babies, whatever that's called. And their relationship was so tight because the time, like the, the father realized that he had a kid late in life and that there was more time, there was less time in front of him than behind him. So it like, he was a great dad. Like just the, 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 you know, he had yeah. 60 years of like career first. He got that out of the way. And then he had the, the, you know, the, the, had the, you know, he didn't give a shit, you know, at that point about like, if he had to be at the hospital, I think he, I think he like went consulting, like he was a consultant for the hospital at that point, but then focused on being a dad pretty much and was still like able to do doctor things when he wanted to. But, uh, so yeah, no, I don't think it's, I don't think age has anything really. Sense. Yeah. That makes so. sense to me. And I never look back on this. Like I've had serious relationships, mm-hmm. um, like four that I count as serious relationships. I either, you know, four years, two years, lived yeah. with a girl, like in years we loved each other, mm-hmm. three or four of those over the course of my life. And so, but I don't think, I don't like. I don't think look back and go, oh, I missed it. Yeah, that was the one that away type of thing. Because I'm like, no, not at that time. Yeah, as I get older, maybe. But I, I mean, I actually have a sort of a new joke. It's well, it was a year before the pandemic. I was doing before that about it. I'm just like, do you want to meet someone to spend the rest of your life with? I'm like, if I die at 48, <laughs> if I'm living to 80, no, <laughs> not yet. <laughs> I would only spend 40 years with anyone. Yeah. 20 years, 15, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. So, and that's very real. It's a joke, but it's also how I feel. Yeah. Speedily married at 25, maybe you did. I don't know, but yeah. I couldn't, me, I couldn't, I can't fathom being married at 25 and staying with one person until I'm 75. Yeah. I just, I, I can't. Yeah. There's too much else I needed to do. Yeah. Mistakes and all, you know, date other girls, drink, yeah. learn my lessons. And then now, like I could see myself yeah. fall in love being someone for twenty years. Yes. Yeah. Because I don't have any desire to run the streets and like hook up with a ton of mm-hmm. I don't care about mm-hmm. any of that stuff. Yeah. No, it's it's actually so it's actually a really kind of cool story. It's like if 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 I'm looking at like the story of Paul Hooper, it's like this kid who um grew up in an environment where like dad he didn't you know you had the whole situation with your dad your mother is like this your mother and your grandmother helped raise you but there's like this mutual respect where you guys are almost treating each other like adults you kind of drop out of school and you just try certain things like as a kid you're you kind of had a head start in life as far as like i'm i'm gonna eliminate the stuff that i you know i'm gonna go down these different avenues you had the your mother gave you the your mother and grandmother and Anne gave you the freedom to be yourself and explore skateboarding and explore um, what um, you know, whatever guitar and stuff like that. And you ruled out these things. And eventually, it came to stand up, and it kind of worked, kind of with your mindset. It was like, here's here's this kid Paul who doesn't doesn't relate to the kids at school because he's he's seeing the world much differently, and he's and you know maybe that's the environment, maybe that's his home life, or maybe that's just what he's you know, seeing on TV or reading in books or what have you, you're obviously a smart guy and it only made sense for you to become a stand-up comic. It gives you the freedom to be your own boss. You have control over what you say. You don't need, you don't, you never appreciated kind of that structured life. It allows you to work outside that structure and be successful. 
and you've catapulted that into a career from age 22 to 45 for right now and beyond whenever the pandemic ends. And you've kind of like figured it out, like in your weird Paul Hooper kind of way, you figured out your own life. And like, now it's like, I can see where your head's at now. It's like, I rolled out all these things to, I've whittled down all these other things to get to this point where like, now I can have kids. I can be like that guy that can be like that support system or whatever. I really like that kind of story that you have. So. That's great. And I never thought of it that way. You life could have veered another direction had it gone that way. Yeah. I mean, easily. And so how it's gone this way, but anyway, it, something that you said and that made me think of like, Oh yeah. Yeah. I didn't even touch on I know, dude. I could talk to you for another two hours, man. You are just uh, a, a great comic, a fascinating person. I feel like we only just scratched surface level as far as like what makes Paul Hooper Paul Hooper. And uh, I hope to see you again, man. I hope to see you on stage. Whenever you're back in New York, we'll get you down, you know, to our little small rooms or whatever. But uh, if you want to, I'd love to. But that's it for me. Thank you. All right, that's my interview with Paul. Did you like it? I loved it. I love any time I get to talk to Paul. I wish I could talk to him all the time. Uh, fortunately, he's in New York City and I'm here. Uh, I hope you had uh, an incredible experience hearing Paul's story. I think it's amazing. Please go ahead and listen to his album, Tense and Uncomfortable, and check him out at a comedy club near you. Please subscribe to this channel, like these videos, leave a comment. It helps me out, and I'll see you next time. Take care.